Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In June 1913, a little over a year since the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank in the North Atlantic, the Carlick, which was the flagship of a three-vessel Canadian Arctic expedition set off from British Columbia, near the southern tip of Vancouver Island. The expedition's mission was to conduct geographical and scientific exploration in an area lying between Alaska and the North Pole. The leader of the expedition was Willemur Stephenson, a Canadian-born anthropologist who had already spent several years studying the Inuit people, the Eskimos, in Arctic Canada. Stephenson had selected experienced Arctic mariner Robert Bartlett as captain of the Carlick. Sadly, shortly into its journey, the Carlick became trapped in ice on its way to a rendezvous point with the other two ships. Months later, the ship was crushed by the surrounding ice and the small crew and passengers struggled to survive for months in the punishing Arctic weather nearly half of the people on board would not survive. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with Buddy Levy, journalist and author of eight books, with the most recent book being Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carlick. Buddy will tell stories of the ill-fated Carlick and of the bravery and determination of its passengers and crew. He will also talk about the distinctly different personalities and leadership qualities of Stephenson and Bartlett. I'd now like to welcome Buddy Levy to our show. Welcome, Buddy. James, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to start off by asking you, Buddy, where do you live now? Are you in Idaho, did I read? Yes, I'm in Idaho in the northern panhandle, um, a little town called Moscow, a college town right on the border of um, the state of Washington. Okay, now it is December 15th, uh, and what kind of weather are you having out there right now? Well, we've got a good little start on Christmas. Uh, sledding, skiing, yeah, about a foot of snow on the ground and uh, more on the way. That's great. So have you always been from Idaho, or do you hail from somewhere else? Yeah, good question. So uh, both my parents were born and raised in New Orleans, and uh, it turns out that my father was a very unconventional person. Most people don't leave New Orleans, actually. Uh, but uh, he left and he went out west and he ended up becoming a, a Nordic skier and ski racer and um, was, was in the Olympics, in fact, in 1956 in Cortina in Nordic skiing. And all of that ended up getting us. He then he practiced medicine. He became a physician and he practiced medicine and moved us to California in 1962. Um, and then a job opened up in, in a ski town um, that he had been to before uh, when he was younger uh, in Sun Valley, Idaho. And so he moved our family to Sun Valley, Idaho in 1970. And I've been in Idaho ever since. That, that's a really interesting background story to think of your dad from New Orleans becoming a Nordic skier. It's like it's like watching the uh, Jamaican bobsled team, right? <laughs> Pretty much. He may be uh, to this day. I'm not certain now, but it won for a long time. He was the only Louisianan to ever compete in the Winter Olympics. 
And uh, yeah, so it was, uh, he, he had gone to a small college in West, called Western State College of Colorado. And that's where he began to love snow and skiing and, and the West. That's great. How did he do at the Olympics? Well, he, you know, at that time, um, he did fine. Um, he was one of the top Americans. But, you know, they were quite a bit behind the Scandinavians, the Finns, the Norwegians, and the Swedes in Nordic skiing. Uh, the benefit was that he did have a, a Swedish Olympic coach, but they just were not as technically skilled, especially in jumping. You know, if you watch the jumpers, how they have their hands behind their back and they're leaning out way forward in front of their skis. Uh, in the day that my dad was competing, the Americans had not cracked that code yet. So they were still sort of sticking their hands out in front of them and catching a little more wind and uh, not going as far. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. Now, buddy, you are, in addition to being an author of several books, you are also a professor of English at Washington State University. Tell me, tell me how your background, your your educational background, and and what introduced you to the love of writing. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting backstory, really. I grew up, like I said, in in Ketchum, and I'm glad you brought up Washington State uh, University. I've been there for I'm in my 34th year, just about starting here in January. But well before that. When I was young, I in Ketchum, Idaho, Sun Valley area, I was uh, at a private school, very innovative private school. In the first year of the school, we only had, there were 31 students total. So our classes were about six people in them. And um, there was a creative writing course that, or we were doing creative writing. And I, I already had been introduced to Ernest Hemingway and his short fiction by my father, Sidebar note, my, my father was a good friend of Jack Hemingway, who was uh, Ernest's eldest son. And my first babysitter in Ketchum, Idaho, was uh, Margot Hemingway, uh, one of the three sisters, Margot, Marielle, and uh, Muffet, who were all, I got to know them all. But one of my teachers noticed that the short story that I wrote was pretty good, as she thought, you know, she was like, that's a pretty good story, you know, maybe... Um, you could work on that and try to get it published. And I didn't have any access to anyone at the time. And she said, well, we're really good friends with this uh, local dignitary woman named Clara Spiegel. And Clara Spiegel was a member of the, I think she had married the man who was the Spiegel catalog magnate back in the day. And this woman, Clara Spiegel, was really interesting. She was, uh, I think she'd written a couple novels. She was an editor. She had palled around with Ernest Hemingway and gone on safari with him. And so it got organized that I would go over to her house, uh, which sat up on this little hill uh, looking over the town of Ketchum. And she would work with me on my short story. And after a few sessions, probably four, maybe five, uh, we got it pretty polished. And she said, you know, you should send this to the local newspaper. And they ended up publishing my piece. Um, it was called Opening Day for Danny. And it was a, a hunting story, a fictional hunting story, but based on some real life experiences that I'd had. And the piece got published in, in two parts. It was serialized. And, you know, I think I really liked the, um, the, the process of uh, making the story better 
and working with an editor. And I have to admit, I liked seeing my name in lights there, you know, uh, and knowing that I had put all that work into it and that it resulted in someone else besides my teacher thinking it was good. What an interesting story. And then to have those relationships with the Hemingways, what a great way to get started in uh, being interested in writing, huh? Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I, I read the Nick Adams stories uh, pretty early on when I was probably 15. And there's an anecdote I like to tell people. I When I was 16, I had this uh, dear friend, Sarah, who I was kind of courting, I guess. And I I gave her a copy of the Nick Adams stories with my, you know, signed it and said, uh, I'm a big fan of Ernest Hemingway's and one day I want to be a writer too. And a few years ago, which was an, uh, the Nick Adams stories were kind of an, an odd choice to give a girl that you're courting, but <laughs> maybe it was the only book I could afford at the time. <laughs> or I had one lying around. Anyway, a couple of years ago, she took a picture of the uh, inscription that I wrote and it's 1976. And I was already uh, had designs on on being a writer and she was very proud of me that uh, I actually lived my dream. Well, you certainly have become a writer and a very, very good writer. And we're going to talk about your latest book. But I was looking at the list of the books that you've already written. Labyrinth of Ice. You wrote a book about a blind man's journey, the kayak, the Grand Canyon, Geronimo, leadership strategies and American warrior, and several other books most of which seem to have the theme of some kind of adventure story or adventure story combined with a leadership story. I wanted to find out from you, what is it in your past and your history that has pointed you towards this type of a book? Yeah, that, that's a really good question because there are, even though I'm if you look at the list, you know, um, it's all over the map in certain respects. You know, it, it spans everything from uh, a biography on the life of David Crockett to the first Europeans to descend the entire length of the Amazon conquistadors. And then a couple of, um, I co-authored, as you mentioned, a book about the first blind man to, to summit Everest and to uh, kayak down the Grand Canyon. Uh, and then I wrote a book with the sadly recently departed two days ago, uh, Coach Mike Leach, who um, was an amazing, innovative coach of a number of different universities, including ours, Washington State. So we're still reeling from that. But yeah, it, you know, and then, and then I have jumped into this um, Arctic series that I'm working on. But I think it starts with the story, really. It starts with something I have to be pretty engaged in um, an expansive, maybe even epic kind of tale that rivets me and that I believe will rivet readers so that there's some, the canvas can be large. I mean, some of them have been larger than others. I mean, the conquest of the Americas by Cortez and you know, and the other conquistadors is a pretty large canvas. Um, but yeah, at the core, I think it's people in in difficult situations coming together and having to figure out how to get out of tough situations. A lot of my books have a survival component to it. And I, I'm not a survivalist or anything. I don't have a, you know, a bug out bag in the garage. Um, but I do like stories in which people are put into really difficult scenarios and and have to uh, MacGyver their way out in some way. And, and I will say that part of that is probably a result of um, 
I've had a kind of, in addition to being in uh, in academics and, and uh, teaching for all these years, I had sort of these side hustles or side gigs that were really, really um, fun and interesting. And one of them was for about 10 years, and this is really before I started uh, writing seriously, or I had just finished my first book. And I found my way into this very strange and um, compelling sport called adventure racing. And this sport was created by a Frenchman named Gerard Fusey, but it was uh, popularized by Mark Burnett, the impresario who created um, The Apprentice, The Voice, and Survivor. So adventure racing entailed teams of four competing over about a week to 10 days, depending on where the course, in these far-flung locales across the globe. And they would do, it was multi-sport, so they would do kayaking, mountaineering, rappelling, uh, sailing, sometimes caving, uh, and the clock was usually continuous. So there was sleep deprivation involved. They they were going and going and going. And following the, these teams around, I was writing as a journalist and getting to know all of the athletes very well and doing some smaller competitions myself uh, and watching people under duress and able to sort of press forward, uh, you know, mountain biking through the night uh, with headlamps, with leeches all over them. And I got to, so that really, I think, um, spurred this interest in deep adventure, you know, and, I, and I, so I, I can, I connect that to sort of uh, when I finished my, essentially when I finished my journalism phase of writing about adventure racing, that's when I started seriously writing these uh, narrative histories. Yes, and I, I also know that you had an experience in your lifetime that sort of piqued your interest in, other than your dad being a Nordic skier, that piqued your interest in the icy climate adventure. Could you tell us about that experience that you had? Sure. So during uh, one of the last races that I went to as a journalist, I had found out that this remarkable blind man named Eric Weinmayer was going to be competing in Greenland. And I thought, well, this is interesting in a number of ways. One is how is a blind man going to compete in an adventure race? That was my first thought. And my sec second thought was, um, wow, I want to go to Greenland. What's Greenland like, you know? And so these are both happening simultaneously. So I managed to wrangle my way in as a journalist to the and, and embed myself with Eric Weinmayer's team. And so I was covering it for a couple of magazines that were uh, interested in adventure sports. So when I got to Greenland, um, I really hit it off with Eric and his team and figured out pretty quickly what a just a miraculous person that he was, uh, not only as an athlete, but um, as a thinker and a, as a human being, and, and also um, how courageous he was to be doing uh, these, you know, he was paddling through these fjords and um, he was uh, trekking. Across. There was no trails in Greenland. I mean, it's basically bushwhacking everywhere. Uh, and so as I tromped along with him for a week, I I was initially just really impressed with him. And then there were other people along the way that we met, other teammates, including this woman that I met named Ingrid Asa. And she was a Norwegian who was 
fascinated and, and a Nordic skier herself. And we started talking about my dad and Nordic skiing and, and the um, famous Norwegians. And she said, well, do you have you heard about Fritjof Nansen? And I said, no, I have not. And she gave me a book called The First Crossing of Greenland. And it was about this man, Fritjof Nansen, who uh, skied across Greenland, determined that it was an island. And then as I started to read about him, I mean, the man, he was a Nobel Prize winner for humanitarianism. He was, he's just an absolute, um, he's a household word in Norway. And then I started reading about these other things that he did in Arctic exploration by building this ship, the Fram, and intentionally encasing himself in ice and letting and drifting for a year. And I was so hooked on this stuff, you know. And so I just started reading and reading. And then uh, I began to stumble upon these stories that I thought, hey, maybe I could tell those in my way. And it really unlocked a kind of, um, yeah, well, it's what will end up being a three book period of my life, in good part, thanks to Ingrid handing me a book. Now, your book, Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Karlik. Buddy, uh, it's riveting, absolutely riveting, filled with rich detail. And it just, you feel like you're on board that ship and along for the adventure. But before I start to ask questions about my experience within the book, Tell us a little overview of what the book is about, just a general overview, because we want people to get the book. Oh, sure. Thanks. And I appreciate the kind words about the, the writing. One of the things I try to do, you know, is to really I, I get the reader there on the ground or on the ice and feeling as if they are a part of the expedition themselves, you know, or short of that feeling like they're watching it on um, a big movie screen where it's cinematic in scope. So I, I try to do that. Yeah, the overview is that in 1913, this very interesting impresario named Willemer Stephenson, uh, who has just returned from uh, four years in the Arctic himself doing uh, science and ethnology, he comes back and he's decides on this new expedition, the Canadian Arctic expedition, and he's going to take a three-ship armada, the best ice master in the world, a guy named Bob Bartlett from Newfoundland, and a bunch of scientists, and take them over Point Barrow, Alaska, and above the Canadian Yukon and Alaska into these islands, and try to find out a couple of things. One, there was a landmass that uh, Robert Peary had presumably spotted from Ellesmere Island, and it's been named Crocker Land, and it's sort of this mythical thing that people are thinking there's going to be new land to be discovered. So there's that. And there's the potential for encountering what Stephenson in 1912 is calling these blonde Eskimos, which are Inuit peoples that he says have uh, blue eyes, blonde hair, and are probably descendants of, of Eric the Red and Leif Erikson. And so there's that sort of tantalizing um, mythos going on when Stephenson comes back. And then, and so in Canada at this time has not embarked on a major polar expedition of this magnitude where you've got multiple ships and a couple dozen scientists. So that was the sort of nutshell 
you know, as far as the impetus for the journey to begin with. And they were supposed to be up there for two to four years, depending on how things went. So it ends up being called the Canadian Arctic Expedition 1913 to 1918. But uh, the story that I primarily tell all takes place within a year, uh, other than the epilogue and back matter. But it's a lot happens in a year, I'll tell you that. Well, it certainly does. And the most interesting part of the book that I found, other than the fact that you you actually experience what these passengers went through, but you you get a really keen study of the major characters, Stephenson and Bartlett, as leaders, as people. It kind of puts you into a chair to kind of sit and review their leadership styles and how they were viewed by their contemporaries and, of course, the people on the ship and on the expedition with them. Let's talk about those two characters. Personality-wise uh, and leadership-wise, how would you summarize Bob Bartlett? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I do sort of position the book around, I begin with those two uh, men. They're the first people that you meet in the book. And that was intentional uh, because they they approach their decisions very differently. So I look at um, Captain Bob Bartlett. Uh, he was a well-known Newfoundland captain who came from this legendary family. They were called the Bartlets of Brigus. Um, you know, he had his uncles and his father and his grandfather were all um, really well known in the whaling and sealing and cod fisheries in Newfoundland. They were, and they were master mariners. It takes a very long time. So this man, Bartlett, was really experienced when he came to the Carlick. He had also previously been on uh, a number of expeditions as the captain of Robert Perry's ship, the Roosevelt, uh, going in search of the North Pole. So he had the credentials to lead men in very difficult situations. Now, Bartlett was, he was funny, gregarious, kind of cantankerous. He swore a lot. Um, he was, um, but, he, but he was also incredibly uh, generous with uh, his men. And you have to realize when we get into it that, that the, the passenger list on the Carlick was unconventional in certain ways because there were crew members who were, you know, in charge of doing what was needed to be done on the ship. And then there were these scientists who were sort of there accidentally because some of the members ended up on the wrong ship. And then there was an Inuit family who um, Stephenson had hired to bring along uh, for dog sled driving, hunting, and sewing clothing. And so you got this strange mishmash of people. And Barlow was really good at figuring out how the dynamics of personalities, how people work together, where they should be bunking and sleeping, uh, what kind of workloads needed to be done. And he was uh, an, a highly experienced captain who knew the order of a ship and what needed to um, take place so that people got along. Now, Stephenson, Willemer Stephenson, totally different character. He was also Canadian born, but he had been 
um, raised in North Dakota. They had moved there. His family had moved there after a series of um, traumatic events that happened in Manitoba. They lost some family members in a flood and they moved to North Dakota. And Stevenson was this guy who was highly intellectual, e even considering he, you know, he grew up in a kind of a, the traditional, like, one room schoolhouse situation and um but he he really quickly went through uh he went to the university of north dakota he ended up getting kicked out of there for being truant and and he was truant because he was uh substitute teaching on the side to make some money but he went to iowa the university of iowa finished his under degree undergraduate degree there uh, within a year uh, after being expelled from North Dakota. And then he um, went to graduate school at Harvard. So what I learned about him was in that period of his upbringing was his chameleon-like nature. Uh, he was able to shapeshift almost uh, with what needed to happen, with what needed to be done. He would sort of be whoever people wanted him to be um, but all the time he had his own goals, right? And so this ends up surfacing in what happens in the story because um, Bartlett and Stephenson in the scope of the Canadian Arctic expedition are only really together for a few months before things go so far south <laughs> so quickly that they're separated. Uh, but then I still follow both of the men and their decisions uh, moving back and forth for a while between what they're doing. Yes, I wanted to comment on what you said about Bartlett, that he was aware of the personalities of the people he was in charge of, basically. And the way that that came out was, and I noticed this, he was very concerned about morale. There's a lot to do with uh, keeping the morale good. He he helped organize games. He gave out prizes. He you know shared his whiskey and cigars with people. And you mentioned about the personalities. He would be making comments such as this particular crew member or passenger seems to be acting a little strange lately. Let's keep an eye on him. Uh, this one here seems a little bit down or whatever. So you think of a captain, you think it's just going to be this rigid, hey, we're out at sea, we're going to, you know, navigation's important, the condition of the ship is important. But he he seemed to be like a, a holistic leader. He he had his pulse on every part of the crew, and he was a, an amazing survivalist, just the way he, he organized the cargo and the supplies and when they would come off the ship, when they go on the ship, what about the dogs, all those things. It was just amazing to me, this guy. And I really thought to myself, as you mentioned, Bartlett and Stephenson separate pretty early in the story, but I can only imagine what would have happened if they had to stay on the ship the whole time. <laughs> what would have happened is what they're such different people. Any thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because so Bartlett was one of the main differences of these men is that, you know, Bartlett was a mariner, a master mariner, which takes six years of continuous life on a ship and then written examinations. And Stevenson had spent some time on ships going to the Arctic, but he was not a mariner per se. And so I think that would have been really, really difficult because the um, you really only want one actual leader of the ship, and that's usually the captain. And so had Stephenson um, stayed 
around longer and we'll we can get into that what like what his decision was to, to leave and why but um I, yeah I, I wonder it it worries me if more people it might have been worse because he might have tried to take more members to ashore once they were floating and that could have been disastrous because Stevenson was really really good at traveling in small teams uh using Inuit practices uh and technique but in terms of you know managing Two dozen people and their varied personalities, uh, he was less successful. And I, and I do, I, I'm glad you brought that up about Bartlett's intuitions about the members and their their characteristics and personalities, because Bartlett fully understood in this period, you know, when a ship gets, so just to back it up a second, the Carluck, after a week or two of leaving Alaska, the ship, the Carluck, the flagship is beset or nipped. It's locked in a mile and a half square of ice that encases it and it's not going under its own power. It's floating toward the Northwest, away from shore and out into the Arctic Ocean at about 20 to 60 miles a day on the wind and current with the no ability to uh, control where it's headed. And so Bartlett fully understands uh, from his reading, his deep knowledge of other expeditions that have been frozen in, what can happen on a ship uh, when people, not only that, uh, as the Arctic night, what they call the long night, begins to lock in, which is maybe, you know, 60 to 80 days of near total darkness uh, when the sun finally goes down. And so uh, there are tons of records and stories of, uh, it's where the term, you know, cabin fever uh, comes in, where people begin to get uh, depressed, anxious, and they are not behaving in normal ways. And there are, you know, sometimes there's suicide, there's mutiny. So Bartlett is fully cognizant of the potential of that happening, which is partly why he understands that we have to keep these men active, doing things, um, participating with each other, having evenings together. And, you know, he's very on that. He, he completely understands the potential for um, just carnage out there. Yeah, there's one mention of one of the one of the passengers who was acting very strangely and to the point I think he was making other people very nervous. Once he was on on land or on the ice or off the ship, I should say, he returned to normal pretty much because he was getting maybe that cabin fever. But it seemed Bartlett had his it definitely he knew what was going on. I rarely seem to get a sense that he's totally rattled. I mean, even when some pretty scary stuff happens, at least he doesn't appear to his his people, the people on the ship he's in, in charge of or responsible for, get to see him totally like, oh my gosh, we're all gonna die, you know, something like that. He kept it, he kept it cool. I always think about if I were in a situation where I was in battle and I was in a foxhole with somebody, I think I'd want to be in it with Bob Bartlett. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. You're, you've hit on something, and he he is unflappable. Uh, there are times, you know, and you, as you get into the book, and they're they're um, they're floating and in, encased in ice, and then you know, on the cover, you can see if you look at the cover of the book, it, the Carlock is in bad straits, right? It's it's going to be crushed, and it is. And so, at a certain point, you know, this is maybe after four months of of drifting, uh, and you mentioned Bartlett's organizational skills, so he. He sees the writing on the wall and he has everyone offload 
hundreds of thousands of pounds of food and coal and gear, sleds. They manufactured more sleds on the ship while they were floating. He has the Inuit family, Kuraluk, and his wife, uh, Kiruk, and the kids are, are sewing Arctic clothing. They've been hired to do so, uh, and thank goodness they do. And Bartlett has selected a spot on the ice where they're going to offload all this stuff. So in the uh, eventuality of the ship being crushed, they have a, a place, they, they build igloos and they have a place where they can they can stay until the, it gets light enough for them to maybe make a dash for land across this buckled sea ice. Uh, so he was very organized in that respect. And good. it's a good thing he was because in January of 1914, after celebrating Christmas and New Year's on the ship, uh, they are crushed and they watch the ship go down. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that about Barlett. He also had this incredible flair for the dramatic. He, uh, in one of my favorite scenes in the whole book, when he he's the last man on the ship, the last person on the ship, and he he goes into the galley and he's he's there's a gramophone and he starts playing record after record. And after each record is done, he kind of theatrically throws the record into the fireplace. And then as it gets, the water starting to wash into the boiler room and he he puts on Chopin's funeral march and then goes up onto the rail and stands there as the notes are drifting into the Arctic wind, almost as if he knows he's being filmed in a movie, you know? And then he steps off right as the Carlick is about to go down and everybody watches this ship sink into this hole in the ice and the flag and the mass go down, and then there's this giant puff of steam where uh, the steam spout is finally sunk, and it's just poof. And now there's, you know, 22 people, 32 dogs, a uh, kitten, and, uh, you know, everyone just standing on the ice going, what are we going to do now? You couldn't make that up when I heard that book. Oh, my goodness, this guy's cool as a cucumber. And it reminded me of like the Titanic when the when the little orchestra was playing as the Titanic yeah. sank. I thought about that. Well, you know, interestingly, I mean, the movie hadn't come out, but the, the Titanic had sunk uh, one year before this happened. And everyone, of course, uh, who has anything to do with the, the Arctic North and, and icebergs and ships knows about the Titanic. Um, so Bartlett clearly, it was on a lot of people's minds, actually, there, many of the of the diaries bring it up. It's like, you know, I hope we do not suffer the same fate as the Titanic. And yet they do. Yeah, it's fresh in everybody's memory. Just to back up a drop, tell us about the Carlick itself. What sure. kind of ship was it? Right. So the Carlick was a, about a 30-year-old um, sealing, whaling vessel. Carlick is an alut word for fish. And so it had been used in the sealing uh, salmon uh, industry and whaling industry. And Stephenson procured this ship for a really good price because it was the whaling industry was in a bit of decline at that time. And, you know, he also procured two other ships. The Carlick was about 129 feet long, but it didn't have a very powerful engine. In fact, the chief engineer, John Moreau, joked to Bartlett that the engine had about as much power as an old coffee pot. <laughs> and, you know, which isn't uh, a really great confidence builder when you're going to be moving through giant chunks of ice floating around. But I have to say, in defense of Stephenson, the initial plan of the expedition was to stay above the 
Alaskan and Canadian northern coast and and go and try to get over to this other island called Herschel Island and then regroup and reorganize all their gear uh, and then try to figure out where they were going to go. And so the, the intention was never for the Carlick to have modern ice breaking capabilities, but it was still undergunned in terms of its power. And Bartlett made them stop in Alaska and have uh, some of the had um, needed to be resheathed in the bow so that it could bear ice bucking. And so, you know, it was never it was also in sort of bad condition um, and it was too small for the number of people that ended up on it. And there are images in the book. There's 55 images in this book. And some of them uh, are from the crow's nest looking down. And you can see how crowded everything was on the top deck. I mean, they have tons of coal bags and um, canoes are strapped and these umiaks, they're skin boats. And they're, you know, it was a bit of a cluster. So um, the, the Carlick uh, was probably not enough ship for the job it ended up having to do. Yeah, but I think it, it really gave it its all, didn't it? Given the ship that it was and its age, and uh, that it wasn't exactly the right ship, that it it hung in there for quite a while, though, didn't it? Absolutely. And you know, Bar Bartlett did everything he could. Um, numerous times, you know, the the picture on the cover, they have they have buttressed the sides with giant ice blocks, and they've actually managed to raise it up a little bit so that the pressure that's encroaching on it from all sides is relieved some. But at a certain point, we're talking about massive pressures that, of giant ice flows that are um, that are floating around, and they begin to to buttress up and and smash into the other sides of the ice that the Carlick is within. And very few ships in that day had the capacity to withstand uh, that kind of pressure. I will say that. I'm always surprised that they didn't, um, nobody figured out that, that uh, Nansen had it completely dialed because when Fritjof Nansen built the ship called the Fram for this very purpose, he created it with a rounded hull so that when the ice invariably uh, encased you, it would uh, pop the, instead of crushing the sides of the ship, it would just lift the ship right up and then the ship's riding on the ice. And so you're just, you're, your vessel is like a hotel. You've got a year's worth of food and you've got warmth. Uh, and so no, nobody, I mean, that ship was especially built to do that. And so what ended up happening for these other expeditions is they were just picking up ships that they could, and they usually had limited budgets too. I will say that, you know, Stephenson was spending the Canadian government's money. And so he didn't have the time to go build a special ship. I noticed he was spending a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He ends up spending uh, something like 600,000 uh, Canadian dollars in 1913 which i think translated to something like 10 million bucks I, I <laughs> yeah was there an auditing department yes there was yeah <laughs> so can you give us a bit of a hint on why stephenson parted company with the carlick sure yeah i mean because this stuff happens quite early on and you know i i look at the book in kind of a in three parts you know there's the uh, convening and getting in the Carlock, then starting out, then Stephenson makes his departure, and then Bartlett has to get the, the survivors to this place called Wrangell Island, maybe it's four parts, and then Bartlett goes on his own mythic quest journey um, to try to find help and get the survivors rescued. But the decision that Stephenson makes, sort of the crux decision of the book in a lot of ways, is that when they're still 
they, they're encased in ice. Uh, it's September 1913, and they're still within striking distance of land. But I have to tell you that most of the people on the ship, uh, there's a handful who have who have traveled on sea ice, but but most have not. And so Stephenson tells Bartlett um, on September 20th, 1913, that he's going on a caribou hunting trip, and that the rationale is that he needs fresh meat. Uh, because they're going to be stuck for a long time and they're going to need fresh meat to thwart scurvy, which they, you know, is reasonable thinking. The problem is that he took a couple of scientists who were actually supposed to be on these other ships. He took two of the best hunters uh, that they had hired on in Barrow, Alaska, and he takes a dozen of the best dogs. And he says to Bartlett, I'm going to be gone for about 10 days to two weeks, should no disaster occur. And you know, Barlow's sort of a, a head scratcher there, like, I don't know what he means. He couldn't have known, Stephenson could not have known what, what ends up happening, which is that one day after he leaves the ship, this massive storm blows in. Stephenson is left stranded on this tiny island, Jones Island, I think it's called, uh, a few miles off the coast of Alaska. And meanwhile, the Carluck goes careening into the Arctic Ocean at 20 to 30 to 60 miles a day. And by the time the you know, clouds part and the sun is out and Stephenson can see anything. It's like, dude, where's my ship? You know, it's gone. And he actually, it's funny because he builds, there's some driftwood on this little island. He builds a 15 foot tall uh, observation tower. And there's this great image of him, this other book where he's like standing up there looking through these binoculars and the Carluck is gone towards Siberia, you know. Gosh, it's, it's terrifying when you think of it. But as, as you go about reading the book, you, you get an idea that uh, Stephenson's true self starts to come out as far as uh, what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish. And there's a little bit of uh, a sense of a disinterest in really what happened to the Carlick. Yeah. I mean, on, so, so what I do in the book from that moment that they're separated, I, I stick with Stephenson for a little while because um, he ends up trying to um, he, he's bound by a contract with the Canadian government to do all of this science. And so he know, he he discovers that the two other ships, the Mary Sachs and the Alaska, are safe in this small harbor off the coast of uh, northern Canada. But Stevenson decides, OK, all is not lost for me. I'm going to continue the science and I'm going to try to regroup and grab some of the scientists and go uh, continue working on the project. But as far as the Carlick is concerned, uh, it's either, he, you know, he says something like it will show up, uh, you know, either either it or its wreckage, you know, and he he realizes that practically speaking, there's nothing because of how uh, inaccessible that section of the world is, you know, the ice only is open up and navigable for like six weeks a year. So now, of course, it's a little more than that. But at the time, you know, six to eight weeks a year. So Stephenson reasonably and practically concludes there's nothing I can do about it now. However, he uh, he doesn't really hurry to get the word out to the Canadian government. He waits and uh, and knows that it's going to take dog sled teams to bring mail. It's going to be months before they even respond to him. And at that point, I then join and stay with the Carlick because at that point, Bartlett has a real dilemma on his hands, and he has to figure out how to get all these people uh, from this shipwreck camp that they named the camp where the Carlick sank, shipwreck camp. It's floating, but it's they, they get glimpses of this place, Wrangell Island, which is this landmass uh, above northern Siberia that they figure when the 
light comes back in the spring, they might be able to get there. He might be able to get them there in small teams. And he does this really organized um, relay system of, of, you know, they can't carry everything. This is the problem. They can only carry a certain amount of food uh, because it weighs so much food and, and fuel. And they do know from reading this pilot book that they have and from these other expeditions that have have, have people had landed on Wrangell Island before, they know that while it doesn't have trees, it has driftwood that has floated from other places. So they might be okay as far as being able to have fires, but they, they can't guarantee how much food they'll be able to procure. They do know that there are probably walrus and polar bears and Arctic foxes and some, uh, some bird life, but they do need to try to bring as much food as they can. And so there's this ordeal of, of Bartlett um, taking them there over a couple of week period. And there's adventures within adventures and ice cracking and under the igloos. And I mean, it's, and I will say that not everyone uh, makes it as it turns out. Uh, and then without giving too much away, I'm okay with this. Some of the members make it to Wrangell Island, at which point Bartlett makes the next major leadership decision, which is they're in terrible condition by the time they get there, uh, many of them. They have frostbite, they're malnourished, they're uh, exhausted, and they're hypothermic. And then Bartlett knows that they're not all going to be able to come with him. Uh, so he needs to use, take the best remaining hunter, this guy Katoktovic, he's only 19 years old, and strike across the long strait, this body of water, but now sea ice, 100 miles to the Siberian mainland, and then travel maybe five or 600 more miles to the end of Siberia, where he can maybe catch a ship and get back to Alaska, and then affect a rescue mission because if they don't get to them by late August or September of the of that year, they're all going to die. When I think of reading the book and knowing the little I do know about the Arctic, it's probably just about the most harsh weather that can be thrown at a human being, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the place the, the, there are places in um, northern Siberia that are the coldest continually the coldest inhabited places on earth and Wrangell Island is only 100 is 100 miles north of that <laughs> but there's no inhabitants there so uh you know and also the thing about it is that uh what people don't really usually understand or unless they've been up there you know is that you kind of envision the ice being this extended uh rink-like surface that's flat and you can just skate across you know but where these giant it's almost like tectonic plates of ice are ramming and crashing into one another. And when they get near land masses, they, the, the, the big pieces of ice stop and then more, the forces make these rupture where they're called pressure ridges. So they, they're up thrust rumble or crumbles of giant boulders. Some of them are, uh, these ridges are over a hundred feet high. And so as Bartlett is trying to lead them across, uh, they're encountering sections where there's miles of these pressure ridges that they have to hack their way through with ice axes and shovels and picks and then build a little trail you know that goes over so it's really quite an ordeal and at the same time the ice is opening up creating fissures and, and what are called leads of open water at any time there's almost no way of predicting it and so you can be moving along and then all of a sudden you hear it screeching and wailing and and, uh, and rupturing and then the ice is breaking beneath your feet and you have to scurry to uh, a safer area. It's incredible. 
doesn't sound like a good vacation spot. <laughs> I mean, and not only that, yeah, you, you know, you're talking about that when they finally make it to Wrangell Island in some of the literature there has been, um, I discovered the, the recorded lowest recorded temperature on Wrangell Island, I believe is, is minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, and so you're talking about having to survive in igloos and they did bring some wall tents that, um, and they've got little Primus stoves, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, of hunkering around a small Primus stove. Luckily, they had these suits that Auntie and the kids had sewed so that they're, you know, they're, they're they have like Arctic pants, mucklucks, mittens, hooded parkas, or else they would freeze to death. You know, Auntie was one of the really the unsung heroes of the whole story because she was constantly making winter clothing, warm clothing for the passengers. She didn't seem like she never stopped. Well, right. And she also teaches them, uh, the, uh, the men, how to, um, I mean, the, the Inuit family already knew how, but like she teaches some of the scientists and some of the crew members uh, how to sew them because at a certain point it becomes clear that they didn't have enough and some of the gear was on the other ship. So they're having to, to fabricate these things while they're um, drifting. And, and not only that, I will say that, and I say this in the book, Auntie and her husband, Kuraluk, uh, and Katatovic, who goes with Bartlett, uh, but on Wrangell Island, uh, I believe everyone would have died without them because they're, they were incredibly industrious, excellent at hunting. Auntie was uh, superlative at taking the rations that they did have and using every part of the seal. Um, she, They were managing to catch birds, shorebirds, these uh, ox or mures, uh, and using every part of those birds. Auntie figured out how to use a sewing pin to jig for these tomcod fish in these little tidal cracks right down by the shore and was being near the um, end of their time there was, you know, catching 15 and 20 of these fish a day. And uh, the kids were uh, like figuring out how to use a little feather quill and put a piece of seal blubber on it, toss it on a line and then have a, a seagull would go eat the blubber. And then they'd yank the seagull in and, and procure that. So, and also uh, Curluck builds a kayak with William McKinley, one of the scientists on the mission or on the expedition, and uh, is able to go out in this skin kayak, uh, terrifying, because he's trying to go get a walrus, and the walrus are massive, and their tusks are dangerous, and Curluck is not really looking forward to this. He's the only one who knows how to use the kayak, and he's like, uh, he, he kind of hems and haws for a long time. He's like, I don't want, seal blubber's fine, you know, I don't need a walrus, <laughs> but he ends up going out there. There's so many stories of bravery and resourcefulness and human uh, ability to endure incredible situations. I think of myself, I think probably the first day the Carlick got caught in the ice, if I was on the ship, they would have found me frozen to death in my cabin. <laughs> that was the end of James's story. <laughs> well, you know, I think Bartlett had, though had a great skill at getting people, at rallying um, people and the it was interesting when you mentioned that because after the ship sinks Bartlett's organization on skills have everything is over there and for the first few days and for the first couple of weeks while they're marooned on that ice flow they are they're eating they're living large you know they're eating they're eating really well they've got all these tinned goods and um you know Bartlett is telling them to eat everything they can and everything they want because he knows they're going to need their strength for this impending journey 
but I, yeah, I think people, one of the things, James, that you, um, you learn in reading these kinds of stories is what people are capable of. Some crumble for sure, uh, but also some rally in ways that they never knew they could. Um, William McKinley, whose diary is uh, instrumental in this book, is an example of that. He had never been to the Arctic. He came as a scientist to do, uh, he was a magnetician. He was going to be taking readings. And, and the next thing you know, he becomes way more than he ever knew he could be. He he surfaces as one of the leaders. When when Bartlett leaves Wrangell Island, he, he leaves McKinley de facto in charge, even though in, in name, Monroe is in charge. Um, McKinley become, he learns how to ski. He learns how to make a skin kayak out of very little um, materials. He learns, because he's the one who helps uh, Curlick build a kayak, he learns how to you know, survive and alone at certain times. He makes these amazing treks down to the southern part of the island to go help these others who are in worse condition. And you, re you realize that, um, and it it's surfaces in the writing of his journal, how, how uh, he became something much greater than he ever anticipated he could have been or believed he could have been. Yeah, now that, that's a good segue here because you mentioned about the journal, McKinley's journal. Your book is so well-researched and so detailed, but detailed in a fascinating way. How hard uh, was it to pull all this information together and, and put it into such a nice flowing story? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because that's the uh, the unseen part of these projects. You know, the book, you read the book and um, you don't really see the the uh, behind the scenes hair pulling of uh, because, you know, McKinley's journal is um, is handwritten. It's, I think, 231 pages long or more, a double sided, uh, single spaced. But I was very fortunate because since it was initially a scientific expedition, um, the, many of the members kept diaries and journals, and they were supposed to turn these back into Stephenson, actually. But those survived. And um, McKinley also ended up writing a lot of other things about it. But the journals and diaries are the main uh, source of that give you this incredible insight into um, not only the day-to-day -day just happenings, what they're doing every day, uh, what they're eating, exactly what they're eating, you know, how they got it. And, but also what I found most useful um, is the, the innermost thoughts uh, and feelings and vulnerabilities and fears. So two of the main journals are McKinley and this Norwegian man named Bjarne Mammen, who was young and, and idealistic, and he had dreams of becoming uh, an, a legendary explorer like some of his countrymen. And so he's really honest about his frailties and feelings of um, of failure. And you also get to see what they're thinking about other people. So you get this sort of survivor uh, on the fly voiceover thing where they're talking about other members and they're telling you these two members are, you know, planning a mutiny. I, you know, there there are silent conclaves and whisperings going on. And so it's really, it's really great. And that's what allows me to, I'm not, I don't make up anything in this book. I mean, it's all the language of the people is what they wrote. Um, and so it's all, uh, th th yeah, those diaries and the same thing for Labyrinth of Ice, the book I wrote before, heavily, heavily influenced by 
personal journals and diaries. And that's what allows me to let the characters speak and to really bring out their characters. Buddy, is there a message that you'd like the reader to come away with from your book? <laughs> um, what are you going to do when things go south up north? <laughs> no, I mean, I think um, that um, I, the, I guess there's not a single message other than um, that. Well, here's the deal. In, in, uh, in the front pages of the book, I have a quote. Uh, a quote by Bartlett and a quote by Stephenson, right? Th and they're juxtaposed uh, with one another. And the quote by Bartlett goes like this, call it love of adventure, if you will, for as long as there is a square mile of the old earth's surface that is unexplored, man will want to seek out that spot and find out all about it and bring back word of what he finds. And I think that's what has driven many, many explorers over history and the search for knowledge, the search for the quest for being the first um, and the quest for the unknown, really. And so I think that that this book is, a, in a way, a, a testament to that continuing quest. And we still have it, you know, in our in our desire to find out what's happening on Mars or to, um, you know, in, in all the ways that uh, humans endeavor intellectually to learn about space you know black holes um and i'll and i'll end with the uh quote of stephenson's which i include as a, a bit ironically because he's he says an adventure is a sign of incompetence and uh so my reading of that is that that Stephenson thinks that if everything is organized and, and goes the way it should, there should be no adventure involved here because everything um, should just play out the way you had planned it. But it's it's ironic in that this becomes such a a quick catastrophe that uh, he might have wanted to retract that statement <laughs> later. <laughs> oh, I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, you know. Well, those quotes say a lot about those two men. Here's another one for you, buddy. If you could go back in time and go to a, a the the saloon aboard the ah. look, how's that? Yeah, have a, a hot buttered rum or a glass of ale or whatever they were drinking on the ship with one of the people who was on board that ship at that time. Who would it be, and what would you want to ask them? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's the first thing that comes to mind is Stephenson, and I would want to. I'd be like, after a couple of ales, I may say, "Look, okay, you know, you're gonna, you're really planning to leave the ship. Like, are you, you know, is that really what you want to do? Like, why?" Um, and I don't know. Given what he said later, um, I don't know if he would have given me a straight answer, actually. But because Bartlett was such a straight shooter, uh, and now Bartlett, um, I have to say, he was a little, so it's probably, it's gotta be, it's gotta be Captain Bob Bartlett. That's gotta be my guy that I would wanna, wanna have some, um, some toddies with. The funny thing is though, he, he is a little bit obfuscating himself because he tells people mostly that he was a teetotaler, that he eschewed alcohol, but he, 
gives booze to the other members on many occasions, like you said, and and he ends up uh, there. There's evidence that he was um, maybe being a little disingenuous about his actual consumption. But I, what I would like to talk to him about is because he traveled so much, you know, and he had been with Robert Peary to the North Pole. And that's really what I would want to talk to him about is, you know, what it was like up there. He got to within 150 miles of the North Pole and was asked to turn back. And he dutifully did what Perry asked him to do. But he saw some things up there. You know, he learned a ton from the Greenlandic people. They taught him how to put grasses in the bottom of his mucklucks to uh, absorb moisture so you didn't get frostbitten. I mean, they were so far ahead of this, like, you know, we Gore-Tex wicking stuff, like they, they already knew. But he also saw some incredible uh, hardship. He watched Robert Peary. Uh, he actually would help the anesthetist when Peary came back from one of his forays a couple months into the north. He uh, Both of his feet were frozen and they had to amputate eight of Peary's toes and, and Bartlett was standing right there while they're amputating his toes. So he was incredibly tough and I just would have loved to talk to him about his experiences as a mariner because prior to all of this, when he was younger, he had gone to Gibraltar and to South America, to Brazil. He'd gone all these, um, as part of his apprenticeship, he'd sailed all over the world. And I would love to hear some of his stories about those journeys. If only we had that time machine, right, buddy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were there any lessons learned from the Carlock that helped future exploration of the Arctic? Were there, were there any things that they looked at and said, hey, because that happened to that ship, these are the things we're going to do the next time? I think it would be more what not to do. Um, you know, <laughs> it's it's interesting, and that's why I brought up the, the I brought up the Fram earlier. I, I'm I and I'm going to look into this because I don't know exactly why. More, um, you know, in this period, the mortality rate of most of these uh, Arctic expeditions was nearly fifty percent. And, you know, it starts to change a little bit after this because of technology, because we get uh, iron clad icebreakers and also radio communication on ships. So this expedition in 1913 is kind of the what's considered like the last of the dog sled explorations, right? So things begin to shift. And so I think of, yes, what they did learn was that, you know, you, you need to have ships that can withstand the ice. Uh, and too many of them uh, had just ended up at the bottom of the ocean. And so you, you begin to see not no one taking these kind of risks without steel hulled icebreakers and steel and more powerful engines. But also, I think the, um, you, want, you know, lessons learned were that you need to be, uh, you know, in part of this again, it, you know, Stephenson could not control the weather, but he did by going off with the wrong men and the wrong equipment on the wrong ships. I, I think that was just a recipe for disaster because uh, they should have all been in the right ships in a, uh, to begin with, and it might have changed the outcome. That would have made a lot more sense, definitely. And I got to find out from you, then, buddy. What what's next? You mentioned another, maybe another book about the uh, about the Arctic. Can you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, sure. I can't seem to get uh, off the ice completely, but in this next book, it's uh, called Realm of Ice and Sky, and I'm under contract with St. Martin's to write it. It's a book about the. So I'm in, I'm going to leave the the surface of the ice and head 
up into the sky above the ice in what were called airships at the time. So we think of them as uh, dirigibles or blimps now, but they were originally called airships like the Graf Zeppelin and the Hindenburg, right? So this is before that. So my book concerns this American named Walter Wellman who attempted to be the first person to fly an airship to the North Pole in 1905. And I follow him for a little while and then he sort of, his attempts uh, and the airship's technological advances over the next couple of decades culminate in these remarkable journeys uh, that involved a, an Italian named Umberto Nobile and the Norwegian Roald Amundsen, the famous Norwegian, and they end up flying these dirigibles to the North Pole. So that's where I'm going to be for the next years, uh, above the ice. <laughs> Though, I will say, crashes occur. And uh, they end up back on the ice. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that one. If it's anywhere near as good as Empire of Ice and Stone, it's 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 going to be great. How can people find out more about you and your other books, Buddy? Sure. Uh, yeah, I do have a website. It's uh, buddylieby.com. And uh, that's a good place to start. And then um, my books are typically sold at independent booksellers, wherever books are sold. And of course, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those places. But uh, yeah, there's a bit of bio and stuff at buddylieby.com. So uh, come visit. Definitely. And one more for the road. One more question for the road. Has there been any discovery uh, in modern times of the campsites where these the the survivors of the Carluck were camped out? Is there has there been any findings there? Wow, that's a really great question. Um, so just to backtrack for a second, the the book I wrote, Labyrinth of Ice, uh, you know, they that was a military expedition, and they built this. It was called Fort Conger. It was in this little inlet uh, on northern Ellesmere Island across from Greenland. And that dwelling stayed there for, for many, many years, and there's still remnants of it. For, unfortunately for the Carluck uh, and survivors, when, uh, when they built shipwreck camp, it was on a floating flow of ice, and that thing was eventually going to be obliterated and um, and absorbed by the polar seas. And also their dwellings on Wrangell Island were temporary because one they were tents or igloos and over time you know the island consumed them but they're uh but i will say something kind of cool about wrangell island is that you know it remains it's it's um it's a unesco world wildlife site it has the um, largest denning populations of polar bears and uh, Pacific walrus breeding in the world. And it's this really hard to get to remote place um, that is only habitat. It's inhabited by like one or two scientists. Uh, it's under Russian occupation, I will call it at the moment. There's been recent articles uh, as recent as a few weeks uh, or a month ago where there's a couple of American writers who are who have pointed out quite reasonably that the U.S. has a decent claim to this place, uh, and so um, it's Wrangell Island is not it's like 90 miles wide and 50 miles deep, uh, but uh, top to bottom. But it's really a compelling place, and I think people should check it out. Go look it up on uh, Google Earth, and you, and you realize, wow, they they lived there for a while. Oh goodness. 
So next time I go take my dog out uh, for a walk and it's like 33 degrees in New Jersey, I shouldn't complain. No, that's when you just say hot and dusty. <laughs> uh, buddy, this has been a lot of fun and very interesting. And I really, uh, I, I really urge our listeners to look you up on your website and check out your books and uh, Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carlic. Great book. Highly recommend it. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. The pleasure is mine. And thanks again. And I hope you have a great night. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.